Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the second episode of our third series of SCI Care, What Really Matters. This series is created in partnership with Wellspect, and we hope you've had a chance to listen to episode one on different techniques and needs for catheterization. That was an excellent, warm discussion, and you can hear our guests' passion and their desire to help our patients to be as independent as possible. It was an absolute joy to hear, so do have a listen. I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Susan Charlefew. I am a longstanding member of the International Spinal Cord Society. I currently serve as the program chair for our annual scientific meeting, and it's my pleasure to lead in on this next discussion. We're going to have a wonderful episode with further fascinating discussions on the neurogenic bladder management, factors for success. We have three nurses who have a wealth of knowledge. They include Tracy Tatum, who's a nurse educator at the Spinal Injuries Unit in Queensland, Australia. We also have Veronica Gang, who's head of the Advisory Center for Nutrition and Digestion for Spinal Cord Injured People in Lobach, Germany and Rachel Skews, a urology nurse practitioner who's at the North Bristol National Health Service Trust in the UK. They have vast experience, vast knowledge, and will provide a tremendous amount of information. So we hope you enjoy this episode as they discuss the causes and types of neurogenic bladder, bladder management options, prevention of complications, and factors for success. Hello. It's a pleasure to be a part of a podcast with three persons who have experience in the field of neurogenic bladder management. And the topic for today is success factors for neurogenic bladder management. I'm Veronika Geng. I'm a nurse and also a nurse scientist in Germany and working with spinal cord injured people over 30 years. My main topic in the work is the bowel, but the bladder is always near the bowel, and so I have also experience in that. I am responsible for guidelines in the European field for intermittent catheterization, indwelling catheterization, and things like this. And so I think it's my part to have a look on the bladder as well to the bowel, and I'm happy to be a part of this podcast today. And my colleagues for today are Tracy. And Rachel, and I think I give the words to Tracy. You can do a short introduction for yourself. Hi, I'm Tracy Tatum. I'm a nurse educator in the Spinal Injuries Unit in Brisbane, Australia. I have also roughly 25 to 30 years' experience working with spinal cord injured persons. And I have a special interest in both bladder and bowel, like Veronica. And Rachel, you could say some words for you. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Skews. I'm a urology nurse practitioner in the UK in Bristol. It's a very large tertiary centre and we have a, a lot of complex patients, urological patients sent to us. I don't work with the acute spinal cord injury patient. I work with patients that are two or three years down the line with recurrent urinary tract infections and all the ongoing problems. So I'm a specialist in bladders uh, and sexual dysfunction which makes my job very varied and interesting. I've been nursing for 21 years and I've always loved urology, but dipped in and out. But I have been doing urology probably about 16 years of my 21-year career. Thank you. Back to you, Veronica. Thank you, you both. I think it's an interesting discussion for, from three people around the world, we could say. And uh, I will start with um, a little story. 
If a paraplegic person had three wishes free from a ferry, he or she would probably still be in a wheelchair. The topics of bladder function, bowel function and sexuality are central issues that occupy paraplegics every day, while mobility with the wheelchair has already been solved quite well. Poorly functioning bladder management can quickly lead to an emergency compared to bowel management. Kidney failure, ascending infections and even sepsis can happen quite quickly. Therefore, special attention is paid to bladder management in neurogenic bladder dysfunction. We would like to discuss some aspects of what a nurse should know or what factors are success factors for a bladder dysfunction and its management. And the learning objectives for this podcast, the causes and types of neurogenic bladder, bladder management options, preventing of complications, factors for success, and available resources for additional learning, example given e-learning SCI or SCI Nurse MOOC, which will start in March or April this year. And so I come to my first question, which I give to, to Tracy. Tracy, how you would explain which speciality has neurogenic bladder? Which types of bladder function exists by neurogenic bladder dysfunction? Okay. That's quite interesting because it's a very broad subject, the neurogenic bladder in relation to spinal cord injury. There are two terms that we use, but around the world they can be quite different terms. Where I work in Australia, we refer to upper motor neuron bladder and a lower motor neuron bladder. And this is depending on the type of spinal cord injury the person has. The upper motor neuron is usually the thoracics above T12 and the cervical injuries and the or the tetraplegics. The lower motor neuron bladder or the atonic or flaccid bladder is usually the injuries below T12, particular involvement around the S23, most of the sacral nerves and things like that. When we talk about the upper motor neuron or hypertonic bladder, capacity is usually small. They have a lot of bladder spasm. And unfortunately, the messages from the bladder or bladder filling or needing to pass urine or anything like that, those messages are no longer able to reach the brain. In the brain, the messages go back to the bladder to contract the bladder and the sphincter to relax. So unfortunately, those messages are all interrupted now. The hypertonic or the upper motor neuron bladder, like I said, it, the capacity is small. They have involuntary contractions. Sometimes there's leakage. Sometimes there's overfilling. There's all sorts of problems there with those particular bladders. With the lower motor neuron or the flaccid bladder, the volumes can be very large. The contractions are absent, but also the sphincter control is gone. So sometimes the bladder will continue to fill and only a small amounts of leakage or sometimes there's a lot of leakage. There is pressure which can be low in those lower motor neurons. It can be a bit high in the upper motor neuron because of those involuntary contractions. These can affect the kidneys, which again can cause all sorts of problems with renal function as well. Yes, I think that that's interesting that you have the dif difference between the high and uh, the lower level of dysfunction. 
if you look to that, which are the main aims to achieve with the bladder management for these persons? Yeah, regardless of which type of bladder they have. Basically, prevention of incontinence, regular fluid intake, prevention of UTIs or infections, the bladder leakage and everything which we're trying to minimise also can impact on things like skin. And as you talked before with regards to the bowel, can have a, any sort of constipation or anything like that can impact on the bladder filling and the frequency and voiding and things like that. The gold standard for any type of bladder emptying, regardless of the type of neurogenic bladder, whether it's upper or lower, is usually using the intermittent catheterization to ensure that we're completely emptying the bladder. Again, that assists in preventing the infection. Some of the patients can also use to minimize any sort of leakage and things like that is the suprapubic indwelling catheter or the transurethral indwelling catheter. Most males as it's a bit easier to get to the urethra compared to females, can also use the condom catheters to be able to drain uh, the bladder frequently. The main objectives, like I said before, is to make sure that we don't have any high pressures or anything with regards to the bladder to maintain that renal function. To ensure that we have that bladder emptying, to maintain continence so that we don't have any issues with leakage, prevention of infection, and also any sort of things that can interfere with the interaction of the person going out in the community or living their lifestyle the way that they choose. Bladder infections can also cause all sorts of problems. Incontinence and leakage also affects them, social interactions and being comfortable in actually going out into the community and things like that. So you need to make sure, which is why social incontinence is such a terrible thing for some of these patients to go through. Okay, that's interesting. And I think if the patient gets uh, in the situation that he is new paraplegic or tetraplegic person, what do you think is the right time to give them some information about his problems with the bladder? Or what is the right time to instruct him to learn things about his bladder management for himself or herself? I think it's always dependent on the patient themselves and where they are through their rehabilitation journey. I've worked with patients from the acute stage, the new injuries, so that it's always important to start off with the indwelling catheters because we want to maintain the renal function and to promote the bladder emptying and drainage of urine. I think it is always dependent on the patient and where they are in their rehabilitation journey. We don't want to further overwhelm the patient with what's going on now that they've just been diagnosed with a spinal cord injury because it is quite an impact for these patients to go through with regards to lifestyle change, sometimes role change that they may be the breadwinner in the house and everything like this and everything sort of gets changed with their current situation that they're experiencing. The fact that they're in a hospital experiencing a spinal cord injury, they don't know what they're going to do or even how long they're going to be in hospital. In Australia, the patients stay for several months, whereas various places around the world, it's only a short-term stay that they actually spend in hospital. 
So some of our patients, like I said, some do come brand new injuries, the acute stage and everything like that. And sometimes we try and address anything with the bladder management to talk about any decision making at least within four to eight weeks after they've had their spinal cord injury to try and decide what we're going to do with their bladder. There's all sorts of investigations to go through because the spinal cord injury, they still may have some sort of recovery further down the track and various times, sometimes months and sometimes even years after their initial injury. So what we decide in those first couple of months after their injury could be completely different three months later down the track or six months later. And I think you also need to give the patient those sorts of options that this is what we're going to do at this stage or we go for those self-caths, do self-catheterization instead of leaving an indwelling catheter in or whether we start discussing having a suprapubic catheter, which means that they need to go for surgery. Some people don't even understand that changing from an indwelling catheter, urethral catheter, a suprapubic catheter actually requires them to undergo surgery for the insertion of the catheter in their lower abdomen. So there's a lot of education and planning that needs to go into their bladder management and ongoing discussion with the patient. Is the bladder management one of the criteria that you can say the rehabilitation for the patient is finished? That if the bladder management is went well and he has no problems with the bladder, that he can go home? Hopefully. The idea is that they'll be independent with their bladder care, but it takes effect on relation to all of their ability on how they can manage themselves. Once they've got their bladder care under control, or completely managed those people, they should be able to. Here in Australia, we always follow up with the patients at least 12 months after discharge and then every 12 months. And part of that is ongoing bladder management and investigations just to make sure that the patients have that mm -hmm. fallback sort of thing, mm. like a check-in system. So you have something like a backup that you see the patients every year to look whether all the, the things he should do, he could do, and he is able to do that. That's a, yeah. that's a fine possibility to look that the patient goes the right, the right way and has no not a lot of problems. And if you look to the, the education, patient with newly injured has a lot of something like crisis. And I think in this situation, it's sometimes really heavy to learn definitely or to recognize new things how you you um, work with them in in your daily activities it can be sometimes it is that the patient doesn't want to discuss those sorts of things they don't want to think about those sort of things but at least we have a multidisciplinary team that we check in with the patients there's always a ward round scheduled or a case conference to discuss these patients weekly and to meet with these patients our patients weekly to make sure that everyone's on the same page with what the patient's doing so if the patient is changing from an indwelling catheter to intermittent catheters We can discuss it. If the patient doesn't want to do it that week, then we can also always approach it a couple of weeks later. Part of the patient education is always about prevention of infections and things like that. So we always cover those sorts of 
information with the patients quite regularly on how to maintain good hygiene practices and things like that. Sometimes they have good hygiene practices with the indwelling catheters and then they're able to transfer that across to the intermittent catheters because they've already developed a habit. Thank you, Tracy. It is also depending on how they feel. Like I said before, it's always up to the patient. We try not to push things onto them. When we do get to the stage of talking about the suprapubic catheters, I think it's very important to let them know that it is able to be reversed. As I said before, the patients in Australia are required to go through surgery for the insertion of the suprapubic catheter, but some of them don't seem to take in the um, information that it's able to be removed later. So if there is a change in function or they get a return of function where they are later able to uh, avoid or able to pass urine to a normal extent, then we can actually remove that catheter for them and then we can sort of place them on a training program to retrain the bladder. That's an interesting fact that the, the surgeon has to, to change the catheter. I think that differs from country to country or continent to continent. In some countries I know the nurses could change the catheter. We can change the catheters. It's the initial mm -hmm. insertion of the suprapubic catheters. Okay. All nurse, yeah, it's mm -hmm. when changing from a urethral catheter to a suprapubic catheter, just because it's going past through the lower abdomen to enter mm -hmm. into the bladder. Oh. So nurses can also change once the initial insertion. We usually wait about mm -hmm. four weeks before the next catheter change. Okay. That means that the, the, the first catheter is, is done by the doctor and then yep. nurses could change it. Okay. Yep. Community nurses after discharge and things like that. In, in the UK, nurses are allowed. Nurses are allowed to insert superfubic catheters in us. And we wait 12 weeks. Okay. To, to change because we've got to make sure the tract is open. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. dependent on who the surgeon is, who, which urologist yeah. is the one, and they certainly give us certain instructions. Mm -hmm. Most of us, but at least the four weeks, like Rachel says, to ensure that tract is in place. So we have some very specific guidelines with regards to when we change to make sure that we've got a baseline of about 50 mils of normal saline in the bladder to make sure the bladder doesn't shrink and everything like that when we do the catheter change. And a last question to you. If the patient is a high tetraplegic person and he's not able to do anything with his hands, yep. you also instruct the, the partners or the, the wife or the husband? It, that's all up to the patients and the family that are involved with regards. In our spinal unit, we do teach the family or carers If the, the carers are not allowed to do catheter changes, depending on agency, the determination in Australia, healthcare, the unlicensed healthcare workers can't do anything like catheter changes. So for the high tetraplegics and things like that, we either train their immediate family members or it's the registered nurses that we also discuss. We ensure that those catheter change The, wherever they discharge to whatever area it is. And because Australia is a very large country, <laughs> to make sure that they've got the ability to get the catheter changed regularly out in the community. It's up to the patient whether they want their family member to be able to change their catheter. Okay, thank you, Tracy.
I give the lead to you that you can ask Rachel about further things. I was going to say one of my interesting things, because some of our patients can stay with us for months and months and months. They don't necessarily discharge straight away. But one of my things that I was going to ask about, especially with the long-term follow-up, is bladder spasms, the upper motor neuron that we refer to anyone above the T12 injury and everything like that. What is the incidence of the bladder spasms? Obviously, anyone that gets bladder spasms, whether you've got spinal cord injury or not, it's really tricky because the management of it is is quite difficult in the sense that there is... I suppose we're assuming that everybody knows what overactive bladder yep. is. Obviously, it, it's basically the bladder is spasming when you don't want it to. And even if you have very small volumes of urine in the bladder, it can be the chitruza muscle uh, being very active or, you know, the spinal cord injury can make the bladder more active. It's multimodal, really. It causes frequency, so you feel like you need to go to the toilet all the time. And when you do need to go to the toilet, it's urgent, and you feel like you have to run to the toilet. And in England, we UK, sorry, we often use the term key in the door. So you come back from your shopping, you put the key in the door, and suddenly you need to run to the toilet. You drop your shopping, you just run inside and go to the toilet. And that's sort of how we describe it. But, you know, that that's the term of really the overactive bladder problems that can occur with that is that they don't empty their bladders completely with spinal cord injury so they have this sensation of having to go to the toilet or you know get into the toilet as quickly as they can and then they're not emptying their bladder completely so the overactivity just continues and manifests and just continues and obviously there can be incontinence with that as well and even in the people that don't completely empty their bladder can also have incontinence so they've got a double whammy of they've got a full bladder and they're incontinent with the overactivity so it's it's a real a horrid thing for the patients to deal with and manage it's really difficult I think the best way of putting it is a, is a lack of coordination yeah so there's no coordination between what's going on and no matter what they do they could alter what they're eating and drinking there's medication that you can take obviously anti-muscularics Botox operations which I'll go into later and then even if the bladder is managed in some way by medication then the sphincter can be overactive or underactive and yeah and it might be that the blood is behaving one way and the sphincter is behaving one way and vice versa so it's it's truly impossible and a a horrible situation and that's really one of the reasons why people like both you and Veronica are involved early on so that you can support them very early on in their expectations about what's going to happen with them and as you you know they develop their injury develops and their bladder and their sphincters change that's where you two come into it and help them deal with and manage their symptoms because actually it's making them independent and actually aware of oh that's what that is I can do that to make that better oh yes Veronica and Tracy told me about this I know what I've got to do I've got to do this and and that's why that early care that you guys offer is so important because you're sort of setting the scene for their future and they understand that it can go one way or the other depending on many aspects of their health what do you think the bladder or what are the symptoms or problems experienced with the underactive bladder or the flaccid bladder? Oh, it, that's just a complete nightmare, isn't it? <laughs> because, you know, obviously kidney function is yeah. is just a nightmare. And, and the fact that they can't sense that their bladders are full and no doubt nine times out of 10, they're doing everything they can to empty their bladder properly. They might be using the creed movement. They might be self-catheterizing indwelling catheter the the kidney function is is the biggest problem 
And the incontinence is such a complete nightmare, like you were saying about the skin problems, yeah. the utter embarrassment of it, you know, the, the social isolation and not wanting to go out. It, it's just absolutely awful. And then some of the patients can void, but they, it's difficult getting started. It's difficult getting the flow going. And obviously not catheterizing and not having an, an indwelling device is the better option, but that's not always possible. And I, I sometimes find patients a few years down the line that have rejected their catheter and have rejected self catheterization and they're doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things just so that they can try and be catheter free and sometimes it works and you're sat open mouth listening to their stories about how they're emptying their bladder but nine times out of ten they're living to a certain extent a bit of a lie and 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 they're not managing quite as much as they think they're managing and that's one of the reasons why they may be referred to us in the tertiary center because they've got recurrent urinary tract infections recurrent bladder stones poor bowel management it's it's just really really tricky I keep saying about both of you and but I think that you two are in such an important position because it's about looking ahead and if they build up a good relationship with you guys then that helps me to have a good relationship with them you know if they've already trust the healthcare professionals and they trust the service that they're offered then they're more likely to engage with me and what I do later on in the line and and that's why you you guys and what you offer initially makes the rest of the journey so much easier and you know and we can look into diet and fluid management we can look into anti-musculinerics you know solifenacine marabegron all the usuals oxybutynin tolteridine botox is something that I do specifically as a nurse practitioner so I do a lot of botox for spinal cord injuries patients, MS, spina bifida, detrusor overactivity, and you know, and then obviously there's the major surgery that we'll probably talk about later. Yeah, Rachel, yeah. with your Botox, with the overactive yeah. bladders and things like that, how often do they have to go back for follow up with regards to those? How long does the Botox last in the bladder? So, how often can they have yeah. it? Okay. Well, everyone's different. Yeah, my priorities are my spinal cord injuries and my MS patients because their bladder dysfunction is massive. I've got a lady with detrusor overactivity or a man with detrusor overactivity. They can sort of get around. They can manage their condition with pads, etc. And it's an, it's a bit difficult, don't get me wrong. But when you've got a spinal cord injury or you've got MS, it's a difference between pressure ulcers. It's a difference between going out. It's huge. So Four months is the minimum, um, but they tend to come back six to nine monthly. But I would happily see a spinal cord injury MS patient, neurogenic bladder, six, four monthly, no problem. Yeah. I'll ask some questions about bladder okay. stones. Any of the bladder, oh, okay. <laughs> bladder stones, like we have a lot of issues with the long-term catheters, the indwelling catheters, suprapubic or urethral with regards to calcification kidney stones, bladder stones, and things like that. Sometimes it's definitely pre-existing. The patient had those sorts of problems before the spinal cord injury. But I think, like you say, with the types of bladder that after the spinal cord injury, the bladder stones and the renal stones and the associated dysreflexia. It's so difficult to manage, like you say. We don't actually um, offer annual flexible cystoscopies on our patients, although they have that with their Botox, essentially. But not all spinal cord injuries get the detrusor activity and therefore don't necessarily get their annual flexes. 
So you're looking at, we do ultrasounds annually, you would always do renal function and ultrasounds annually, no matter what, even if they are fit and healthy. And if obviously the situation is different and they do have recurrent infections or real problems with their bladders, we would do that more often, especially if there's any sort of kidney problems. That's our obsession of a urologist is their EGFR, their creatinine. We are completely obsessed with their kidney function. And the stones often cause infection and they pop the balloons or the catheters. There's encrustation. There's often fragments in their urine. You can often tell, and we would, we've got a huge nurse-led service in the UK, so we would just do our flexible cystoscopies. And if we diagnose it, then we'll just get them in for urgent cystolithopaxy. Obviously, if it's in the kidneys, we'll try lithotripsy, depending on if it's visible on x-ray and their comorbidities, etc. It's very difficult to manage with, most importantly, autonomic dysreflexia. The absolute horror of us nurses you should see me when I'm doing Botox on a patient that's got a T6 or above in injury. Oh, my Lord. You know, there's normally only me and two other support workers with me. But if I've got anyone with a risk of autonomic dysreflexia, I've got a, a room full. I've got blood pressures attached to them. There's a person stood right next to them. Any problems? Any flushing? Any pain? And you ask, oh, we always obviously ask the patient what their symptoms are. Some patients it's flushing. Some patients it's tingling. Some patients, I've got one chap who gets a hot ear. And oh. if he gets a hot ear, we get we get completely freaked out. So, are you hot at all? You know, uh, we got the nifedipine out ready. Yeah. It's something that we take very seriously. But it is a nurse-led service, so there are yeah. no doctors around. No. If there was a doctor around, we'd be less freaked out. But it is That's... totally nurse-led, so... No, I fully agree. Even when there are doctors around, when I used to assist with the not that we're talking about sex or anything, with the semen collection and I would have, in the old days we had nifedipine, but at the moment we use anginine, so that's what's in my pocket so that <laughs> you've got immediate access. <laughs> and everyone around you, you can feel the tension. Yeah. And I'm trying, and, and you know, I mean, some of the patients I see every four months for the last like five years, so they know me well and yeah. I'm very much as I am. I'm a laugher and a joker, but I'm very professional and they know what I'm like. They practically take their clothes off as they're all wheeling themselves into the room. I'm very chilled out and, and they can talk to me about anything. And sex is something that often people talk to me about. I must have that face because some people come in for, you know, a problem with an infection and five minutes later they're talking about their sexual function. <laughs> I must have that sort of face. <laughs> That's what we sometimes use to convince them to go with the clean intermittent catheters yep as you can get rid of the idc absolutely yeah that's a very good way of the converting is you know if if you consider this uh you could have sexual intercourse oh and you know it's like oh okay you know it's going to take a bit of work but there are medications and treatments that we can give you know there's there's lots of stuff out there and actually the, the real crying shame is when the patients don't know about it and that's why these sorts of podcasts are so important, you know, makes our patients aware, makes our colleagues aware. And, and education in general, you know, I'm part of the British Association of Urological Nurses and, and we're a big part of educating patients and our colleagues around the country and around the world. Some people do get stuck in what they do and they think that's it and it just so isn't. There's so much going on around the world and we learn from each other so much. Definitely. There's um, always options. Yeah, and, and regarding the urinary tract infections, that's a really big issue. And that's actually one of the big things that patients get referred to me for because we're a tertiary centre. Might be that they need to think about, we do intravesical antibiotics. So I teach patients to give themselves gentamicin and amacacin in their bladders. 
And there are quite a few other departments in the UK that are taking on that. And I share all my paperwork and my research and everything that I've got so that it can make their service easier. And we have published a couple of papers on it. Um, it's controversial, I won't deny it, but we do have microbiology support. And I think if you don't have microbiology support, you're not going to get anywhere with it because they really do have to support the service. And obviously anyone that does get urethritis, there's prostatitis and urethritis, epididymitis, and we get a lot of that epididymitis where they need ultrasounds. And obviously that makes their autonomic dysreflexia wrong. And you're going around and around and around in, in a circles. Suit. Yeah. And once the patients really recognise that it is their bladder dysfunction that is likely to be causing this, they often engage more in what is needed, you know, clean hands, using good technique, drinking plenty, wiping their genitals beforehand, the sort of catheter that is for them. And the, the, good, the most important thing is choice, patient choice. And although there are catheters that we all prefer, don't get us wrong, but just because of our experience in using those. I still think that patients should be given a choice of the type of device that they use because it might be that something that although we don't get on with, they get on with really well. And, and I think that that's really important. And actually, it's part of their choice. Their decision-making helps empower them. And, and I think that's a really important part of their recovery. Oh, and inter- this is very interesting. I did a bit of research and there's a, a fantastic paper, actually, as far back as 2007 in the BJUI Abrams et al., and they talk about bladder cancer. And I never thought about this or had any consideration with this. And I don't know whether YouTube would be able to comment further, but it says it's 16 to 28% more likely for spinal cord injuries patients to get bladder cancer. My only assumption is that something to do with the catheters. Is that true? But I, I'd never heard that before. Veronica, do you know anything about that? Yeah. I know there is a paper also from Germany, um, multi-center study, and they um, reported about it's more often than in the normal uh, people, and that cancer is a very aggressive cancer in, in contribution to the other people. And in combination with catheterization, it's I, I don't know the number how more often, but but it's really recognized that it's a problem. Yeah, I had no idea. And I think historically, I've done flexis for a long time and been a nurse that supports the doctors doing the flexis. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that it was a big part of my work, but maybe it was without me realising, you know. Obviously, we do the cystoplasties and we do annual flexis after the cystoplasties. And they're more at risk because of the join between the bowel and the bladder. But I didn't realise the native bladders were more at risk of it. But it seems that there is. And I'm certainly going to look into that more. And obviously, we do mitrofenoffs as well. That obviously puts a risk because obviously the attachment with the bowel and the bladder. So we do keep a close eye on those. But otherwise, say you had a spinal cord injury, who didn't have an augmented bladder or a mitrofenoff and didn't need Botox, you know, are they more at risk? Or is it the catheterization associated with their detrusion underactivity that causes the... I think it's not known clearly what the reasons for this more often cancer in, in bladder cancer. But I think it's a, a field we have to recognize and we have to look on it so that we could see it in an early stage of cancer and not merely at the end of cancer. Hmm. Yeah. And I suppose we're in that situation where we can, especially if we're giving people Botox, especially if they're getting urinary tract infections, because you're going to flexible cystoscopy them more often. And therefore, you're going to pick up on these early stage cancers and deal with them. Hmm. 
I certainly can't think of anyone or patients regularly that I see who have got neurogenic bladders who I'm treating with BCG or doing cystectomies and stomas because of bladder cancer. Yeah. So I suspect they're picked up earlier, maybe. Possibly. So what can we do? What can we as nurses help our patients with successful bladder management to prevent these complications that we've been talking about? So let's end with something happy. What can we do? And we teach our patients what to do to prevent all this horror that we've been talking about. I think we nurses should be aware that we expect a lot of things that a paraplegic or a tetraplegic person has to learn and to implement and to do in his daily activities. And I think sometimes it's too much for the person. And we have to make some clear plan in which time he could learn things and is he able to learn things and whether we have to wait to instruct him for things. I think the patient should know that the bladder is a very um, delicate organ and that the bladder doesn't forgive mistakes. The bowel is much more easier in that way, but the bladder is a very delicate organ for that. And the patient has to be aware that he has to look to this organ every day and that he has to do the things for a good bladder management also every day. Two or three days doing wrong things, it's enough to make, for example, urinary tract infections. Urinary tract infection can get to nephew um, problems and things like this. If you have, for the, for the bowel example, if you look two or three days not so good for the bowel, maybe it comes to an incontinence or maybe it comes to a constipation, but it doesn't hurt at the same level than the bladder does. And so I think the discipline for the patient he needs and he should have every day, not only for the bladder, also for the pressure sore prevention, for the thrombosis prevention and things like this. For the bladder, I think one of the main focuses that the patient has to drink enough every day. And he should not limit his drinking or his fluid intake because he has to categorize one more. He should drink minimum 1,500. We say 1,800 because also the bowel needs a little bit of, of fluid. So it uh, should be between 1,500 and 2,000 milliliter a day to drink for the paraplegics. And I think they could do some prevention for the urinary tract infection, for example. They could take cranberry juice, cranberry capsules, as well as demonose for, for prevention of the especially E. coli bacteria. And I think the hygienic aspects are also relevant, that the patient know that the main bacteria who are responsible for urinary tract infections are these bacteria coming from the bowel. And that's meant be the enterococcus, that meant be the E. coli in the main focus, and that the hygienic aspects before catheterization, before handle with the casida, and things like this are really, really relevant to prevent urinary tract infections. And the patient should be aware that the bladder goes not over 500 milliliter volume because this damages the bladder and it leads to, to get more infections. It leads to get more problems with the bladder so that he has a rhythm how to empty the bladder in, in a fixed way. And in really good situations, the patient know if I drink at 10 o'clock 300 milliliter and at 12 o'clock 300 milliliter, I have to go to the toilet at 1 o'clock p.m., for example. And if the patient recognizes these things, that he learn his system himself, and not every patient has the same rhythm how fast the body system functions, 
And so I think he has to recognize and to be aware what happens with my body with the neurogenic bladder dysfunction. And I think these are some aspects which are really relevant to be successful for the bladder management in spinal cord injured people. And I think the education for that, to inform the patients, to give him uh, examples what happens if he do things not in the right way. And I think having problems is the, is the hardest way to learn, but it's an effective way to learn. I think you could hear things a lot of times and you don't recognize, oh, yes, they can tell me like this, but that's not me. And if they get a problem, they see oh, they have just the right words for me, but I don't hear them. And I think we have to give information to the patients more than once because one time hearing things, it's not very um, helpful. You, you hear it from different person in the same way. I think it's much more effectful. That's one of the reasons I think we have to think about also as nurses, as doctors, how to give information to the patient as well as when and how to instruct the patients. And I think not only instructing, also make some controls whether the patients do it in the right way. These are things we have in our hands to give the patients some possibility to be successful with their bladder management. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean... It's so important, isn't it? The education, but ongoing education, isn't it? Because actually techniques change, there's new research, there's new products. It's about educating our colleagues as well as our patients, isn't it? Because it might be that we three work in very large departments and we have access to all the knowledge and information, but actually there might be a smaller hospital nearby. Especially in the UK, we've got very large hospitals and very small hospitals and the access to the patients and to the education is quite different. Definitely. And I think it's important for the knowledge sharing, the knowledge sharing across all areas, but also like Veronica says, is that ongoing follow up and checking in with the patient, like you do the education, it should always be ongoing education. I think Rachel also said before, with building that rapport for the patients, I mean, we don't always see our patients, we like them to come back every year and things like that for follow-ups and everything. But sometimes it can be a phone call out of the blue from someone that you haven't cared for for five years where they've rung up and said, I keep getting these UTIs, what do you think's going on? And then you sit down and actually have a chat with them over the phone to talk, to try and help them identify it. They're trying to do these things and then you've discovered that they've had a change in care or circumstances and then you can sort of suggest ways to manage. Yeah, and, and asking out, you know, I'm very lucky that I'm surrounded by really good consultants in Bristol and people that are really interested in. We've got a very large urodynamic department and we've got a, re a really big supportive team of consultants for all the aspects, but especially within neurogenic bladders. And if they don't know, they'll ask their colleague, well, they, they do know, but if they need to ask out, they've got loads of different people all across Europe and the world who they ask. I think that's really helpful as well, being confident to ask your consultants or senior nurses, whoever it is that you need to speak to. And I find that vital. I think that's right. And we also have to be aware of the whole person who is sitting yeah. before me Absolutely. because I think we have a, we got more and more specialists or experts in special fields and I think the spinal cord persons are persons who have a lot of problems and if you change something in the bladder management for example 
it have also affect the bowel management, for example. Yeah. If there is an anticholinergic yeah. medication, you can get constipation, for example. Yeah. If you get psychologists to give some medications, who could influence the bladder as well as the bowel? And I think yeah. we should be aware to see the whole patient and the whole system who has problems. And um, yeah. sometimes we lose that, I think. And so I ask, for example, if a patient is constipated, I always have to ask, how many you drink? And if you yeah. tell me, oh, it's always enough, I ask him also, do you have some incontinence in the bladder function, in the bladder? And then he says, yeah, sometimes there is. And I think, okay, he can tell me that he is drinking two and two and a half liter, but he only do the catheterization three times a day. So it doesn't match together. So you mm -hmm. have to be aware. The patients know what we want to hear if you ask, if you <laughs> ask. And sometimes we have to be tricky to ask the right questions to see that there is something going wrong. And obviously getting urine samples off them. If they say that they're getting urinary tract infections and they don't know why, and then you get a bright orange mm -hmm. urine sample, middle of the day, you say, well, are you, are you really drinking enough? You know, what's their pH? What's their SG? It's like, mm, I think you might be telling us a little tiny fib. And I think they are people like you and me, and we all have sometimes difficulties to make things like we should do. And we should also have to be aware. Yeah, we're not all perfect, are we? Yes. No, yeah, no. yeah, absolutely. We don't all follow the rules. <laughs> I was just thinking about urodynamics, by the way. So do you regularly do yeah. urodynamics on your spinal cord injury patients or is it just as and when they need them? It's as and when they need yeah, them. I was here. just thinking when you were saying you've got this wonderful urodynamics team and multiple urologies and everything like that, unfortunately, no, we don't have that, <laughs> those sorts of options. And we are in a large central hospital and everything like that. It's very unfortunate. Similarly, some of our patients come from up to 12 hours away from our central spinal unit and they only get a visiting urologist maybe once a year, if that, maybe every couple of years. So it is really quite I was so impressed with what you what you yeah, have available. <laughs> we, we are very lucky. We've got four or five clinical scientists that do the urodynamics and the anorectal physiology and video urodynamics, ambulatory urodynamics, standard video dynamics, and we do lists every day. We're very lucky. You're always welcome to come and visit us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think our time is running out. Rachel, would you say some key message for our podcast? Ask for help. If, if a patient comes to you and you're not sure the answer, say to the patient, do you know what? I'm not sure about this or the nurse. I'm not sure about this. And then reach out because we are all over the country. We're all over the world. Reach out. Don't give the patient the wrong information and don't say to the patient, I don't know the answer to that and don't give them the answer because that's not fair. You've got to reach out. You've got to ask and you may get lots of different suggestions. But hey, if the patient has to try multiple different things for it to work, give them that option empower them allow them to make those decisions don't just say oh i don't know the answer to that that's my advice thank you rachel and tracy your key message my key message is like rachel says it's to always ask regardless of the information the patient needs to be aware of all the different options available and they need to be comfortable in going back and asking if they're not happy to start self-cathing this week give them the option to start at a later date those sorts of things. 
They always need to be the patient is the center of the decision making. Thank you. We hope we could give you a small overview about the neurogenic bladder, the bladder dysfunction and the bladder management. You hear something, what's new for you, and I think the aspects like empowerment, like discipline, are very helpful things that we could use that we get a successful bladder function for the people with a neurogenic bladder dysfunction. Thank you very much for your attention. Bye. 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 Thank you. So thank you all for listening. In the previous discussion, we've learned the importance of education for people with spinal cord injury, their family members, and importantly, the clinicians who manage their bladder needs. You've learned about the various types of neurogenic bladder, the various management options available to people, the importance of having a bladder management schedule that fits best with the person's life and lifestyle, approaches to complication prevention, and several tips for successful bladder management and hygiene. The importance of maintaining a fluid balance was emphasized and will be varying depending on the bladder emptying technique. Some people may need more fluids, some less, but monitoring is essential. We've also gained some information regarding bladder cancer in this very unique population, and we know that this warrants attention. As a research scientist myself and a sociologist, I was very excited and pleased with the advice we were given on the critical importance of patient choice throughout the process of choosing bladder management programs. Working as a team with the person who has the spinal cord injury is the approach that clinicians must embrace. It is that person's independence, quality of life, and ability to engage in activities that are goals we all share. We hope you enjoyed listening to SCI Care, What Really Matters. As always, we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can email them to admin at iscos.org.uk. And we hope that we will see you at our 61st anniversary annual scientific meeting this September in Vancouver, Canada. All the details are in our show notes, and you'll also find us on social media. So please do follow us and join in on the conversation. Until next time, we thank you.